1: get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag hit up quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order that's quince.com upgrade
2: hi there and welcome to the stock club podcast coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin Ireland. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Karen. Today, we're talking about SoftBank's $6.5 billion loss, the most profitable company in the world going public, and two mega trends that we're keeping our eye on over the next 10 years. Okay, guys, so let's kick off today and talk about SoftBank. So last week, SoftBank reported their quarterly earnings, and for the first time in 14 years, they reported a quarterly loss of $6.5 billion. Um, a lot of this came from their $100 billion Vision Fund. Uh, that specifically had an operating loss of $8.9 billion during the quarter. And it was driven mainly by the troubles of Uber and, most significantly, WeWork. Um, Rory, are you surprised?
0: <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I think what was most surprising was um, the presentation was put out last week and I stumbled upon it through Twitter Yeah, and clicked into the link and started going through the presentation and it's very odd like as someone who goes through investor presentations all the time this didn't seem right there was something weird about it Yeah, um, and it had a kind of strange kind of stormy sea narrative at the start and we work bad kind of thing yeah. and then it just descended into kind of real remember when we talked about the we work S1 yeah what was the famous the line um, the opening line yeah, which yeah. is oh. like we were here to elevate the world's consciousness yeah that was boring. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 so like I <laughs> how said, could I forget that Well, when I read that I said that was the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen from an investing point of view uh, this kind of was it, I could kind of see where it's coming from when I saw this presentation by SoftBank there was just these kind of graphs where like money goes in and profit goes up and there's no like figures attached to it whatsoever there's no time period attached it's an x y graph with no legend whatsoever there was one slide which was said gross profit down operating expenses up equals negative ebitda and then the next slide said gross profit up uh operating expenses down ebitda positive yeah. And literally it was this. This this was like the plan to turn WeWork around. Yeah. And it's like this is crazy. How are you like you can't be a 100 billion dollar company and present this kind of stuff to shareholders. Yeah. But they did. And um, so following up from that presentation, I went back and looked through a couple of other SoftBank <laughs> presentations <laughs> and trust me they only get weirder. There's one particular from 2010 which was like Masosan's 30-year vision. Yeah. Uh for the business. And this it is when he was launching the visit vision fund, was it? It was a bit before that. Okay. It was just his kind of thirty year vision for the yeah. whole business. Um maybe we'll get on and talk about that a little later and maybe talk about in specifically this kind of vision fund thing that Softbank have on yeah. at the moment. There's a great piece in the New York Times today, um, which basically focused on the kind of companies that they've been investing in. It's it's a hundred billion dollar fund, the largest venture capital fund ever created, like ten times bigger than most Uh, venture capital funds um, they've invested in a huge variety of businesses but there is a real reoccurring theme with the kind of companies they're going after Mm. and it's those companies that kind of focus on turning people into commodities and I know that's that sounds kind of harsh yeah but it's this gig economy contractor-led focus on everything and it's it's nearly all paid for by these incentives that SoftBank is pushing into the companies. I'll just give you a couple of examples of companies that SoftBank has backed. So huge amount of ride-hailing services we've talked about already. Grab in Southeast Asia, Diddy in China, Uber obviously in the US. There's one called Ola in India. There's a couple in South America. They've got a lot of food delivery businesses, which we've talked about before. They've got a yep. couple of uh, real estate companies, a few logistics businesses and a hotel business in India as well. And nearly all these companies have this same thing where they are basically taking someone, removing them from employment as a category and paying them on demand. Yeah. And the way they're attracting people is with these huge cash incentives, which in the last year or two have been really drying up as the comp- as SoftBank suddenly goes, we have to stop losing yeah. lots and lots of money. And all these people are being ha- like really wrung out to dry. You know, you think about... Uh, people who work for there's you know the piece talks about a South American um delivery food delivery business where the person so the, the only thing that the person has to buy is the bike the jacket and the bag for this delivery service which comes to $25 which to us doesn't seem like a lot but in Colombia, that's a huge amount of money for someone. Yeah. And they're getting, they were promised to be paid kind of like way more. They're promised to be paid like $1 per delivery. Yeah. Which wouldn't mean they were making way more than the average annual uh, or the average daily wage. Okay. But suddenly now they're being paid 45 cents. Yeah. Per delivery because SoftBank suddenly is stopping. Pulling funding. back on these incentives. They're pulling back on these incentives. And so people are now having to work seven days a week just to keep them themselves going. This is a real kind of theme that's that's going through these SoftBank investments, which is this growth at no cost, growth without ever thinking when the profit's ever going to drop to the bottom line. And I think what it's actually doing, it's creating these these kind of soft, flabby businesses that, for one, have never actually had to make a profit, so they've never had to prove themselves. Yeah. And two, have very rarely ever faced direct competition. So, like, you know, SoftBank pulled Uber out of China because it didn't want it interfering with Diddy. It pulled Uber out of Southeast Asia because it didn't want it interfering with Grab. And, you know, um, Nassim Tlaib has a has a f- uh, phrase, anti-fragile, yeah. which is something that, rather than being just robust, rather than being, you know, resilient, actually gets stronger the more you attack it. Yeah. And companies are supposed to be anti-fragile. More com- competition is supposed to strengthen a company and make it better and make it more profitable, you know, if they survive the challenge. Yeah. Whereas now you have these companies that have never really been tested in a competitive environment and the valuations just are... Pie in the sky. There's no idea what they're valued and at. Because Uber is very clearly the perfect example of that. Because in the in the North American market, Lyft
2: is there, and it's a race to zero really in terms of incentives and for drivers and users.
0: Yeah, well, we're not like we still haven't. Uber hasn't shown yet that it has a path to profitability. It, it's you know try to Uber Eats, which we've been talking about in here. Food delivery doesn't seem like it's a, a profitable business either. Um, and now so they're trying. They're trying new things. They're trying Uber Fresh you know they're trying helicopters they're trying scooters they're basically yeah. just creating new companies every couple of months to try and figure something that's going to work yeah and we don't know if it will be or not you know yeah. we just don't know that's why i think the market has reacted to where the way it has
2: absolutely so then back to back to softbank itself and that six and a half billion dollar loss Um, the vision fund is is kind of has always been you know when you mentioned SoftBank over the past few years, it's about the Vision Fund. And how badly do you think confidence in the Vision Fund 2 will be affected by this loss?
0: So one of the slides on that original presentation, and this is this is kind of one that's quite interesting because there's, this, there's a slide which shows the current market cap of uh, SoftBank, which I think is around $80 billion. Yeah. And then there's the the total value of SoftBank with all its interests is somewhere around $210 billion. And this is kind of a, a slide massive Sun is showing to investors being like, look how undervalued our company is. And that's kind of like, it's, you know, we talk about SoftBank and how the companies, or the Vision Fund, sorry, and how some of the companies in that are grossly overvalued. But that's still a very small part of everything. Yeah, You know, they've got Alibaba, a huge stake in Alibaba. They've got Yahoo Japan. They've got Sprint. These companies we kind of can assess the value to. And the, the value of it is actually around the $200 billion mark. So what does it say when the market is valuing your company $120 billion less than it should? It clearly signifies they have very little confidence in you. Yeah. So he was showing this as a positive. Yeah. If I was an investor looking at that, I'd be like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> you can't convince the market to value our company yeah. anywhere near what it's supposed to be at. $120 billion off. Because they clearly think he's going to take the money he's making from these good investments and throw them into bad investments. Yeah. So very little confidence in that guy at the moment. Which brings us back to this. <laughs> so we, we probably need to give a little
2: bit of context here. So um, in in Rory's research, he he sent this to me on Slack um, last Friday, I think it was. And um, in his research on SoftBank for this piece, he found uh, a a deck, I suppose, a slide deck from SoftBank. It's actually dated June twenty fifth, two thousand and ten, and it's it's titled SoftBank Next Thirty Year Vision, um, and it's it's a sight to behold.
0: It like if you were interviewing someone for a job right and even like an entry-level job yeah and they showed up with a presentation like this they you would laugh them out of the room you'd probably fall on the floor laughing and can like thank them for giving you the best laugh (laughs) of your life and wish them well like it's ridiculous it's the most insane it looks like someone who's never used powerpoint before put it together it is the
1: craziest powerpoint presentation i have ever seen in my life nothing compares to it if you were to recruit someone who's deluded and anti-creational they couldn't come up with something like better.
0: yeah if you like if you ever worry that a- big presentation you're giving isn't up to scratch <laughs> you go go to this <laughs> click on this link right and yeah. you will be you will be so relieved that like a yeah. hundred billion dollar company gets away with this sort of <laughs> stuff quickly what's your favourite slide from it if you had to pick oh, one there's so many good ones I mean there's one where he's he's talking about the future with telepathy yeah. and there's like a lot of really bad stock images of people and then there's like a little Wi-Fi signal coming out of one of their heads yeah they're all and and holding their temples <laughs> and then there's two dogs with Wi Fi symbols coming out of their heads. Like, we're going to communicate telepathically with dogs. <laughs> That's probably my favourite, but there's so many to choose from. Yeah, like, the, the world
1: in 300 years ago. That so was. that was There was the world In 300 years ago Which makes you pause and go What's, what's being said here And then it goes through The evolution Industrial revolution Steam engine Iron making technology And basically concludes With a picture of riots By people who feared machines <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah, uh, yes. Smashing up I think it Was it the Luddites Whoever He doesn't say yeah. But it was the guys Who smashed up the, loo- Riot the looms Riot by people who feared machines I'm Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> There's another one Where it's like Two people in front of a It's like It's the stock images I think are the most Offensive part It's just <laughs> Like Googling two people standing in front of an ocean and whatever pops up first. And the caption is, yes, people long for love and get hurt by love. <laughs> yeah. Who so hurt him? <laughs> and also
1: unsavory topics like a trend line of people who tragically took their own lives in Japan over yeah. five, ten years. You're like, what relevance has this? And and it just isn't it does nothing makes sense in it. I yeah.
0: shared it with a, a group of friends in a WhatsApp group. And like none of them are into investing per se. And I kind of said, like, look, I understand reading an investor presentation isn't what you guys had planned for a Friday afternoon. But really, please, please take a look at this. And like some of them started sending like, you know, their favorite slides. And one of the guys wrote back, he's like, I encourage you to view the whole presentation (laughs) as these excerpts possibly make it seem more sane and less relentlessly threatening than it really is. (laughs) My my favorite slide I just just
1: happened across here is a graph of the number of brain cells. Oh so yeah. A, a human being has thirty billion brain cells, a chimpanzee is eight billion, an insect has one million, and an amoeba, which we're compared to has one brain cell. And you're left thinking, why? What relevance? What's the purpose? It's it's,
2: yeah, I'll, I'll include the link in the notes for today's show. But yeah. I, I really, as Rory said, I encourage you to digest yeah. this
0: whole there's, presentation there's, a, there's that scene in the Big Short where he, uh, Steve Carell's character, is met with this guy who makes um, CDOs
2: Oh yeah, And yeah. the guy's mm-hmm.
0: such like a sleaze bag that after the conversation, Steve Carell walks up to his his partners or his, his, uh, his buddies and says, short everything that guy touched. That like, when you see this and you see that this guy is the guy leading this fund and leading this multi-billion dollar company, you are kind of like, this guy's crazy. Yeah. You, like, you need to get far away yeah. from everything he's involved mm-hmm. in. You heard yeah. it here first. Yeah, that's <laughs> Mo- right.
2: Moving on then. Um, last week, the world's most profitable company, Saudi Aramco, published its prospectus ahead of its long-awaited IPO. And... Um, for those who don't know, this is the national oil company of Saudi Arabia. And it's expected by some analysts to be valued at as much as $2 trillion after flotation, which would make it the most valuable company by far. Emily, you've been looking at uh, Saudi Aramco over the past few days.
1: I have indeed, James. It's an interesting one. It's about to, well, they're planning to list on the Riyadh Stock Exchange. Did you live in Riyadh?
2: No, I lived in uh, Abed, or Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Abu Dhabi, are you sure? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot there. <laughs> so
1: yeah, as Saudi Aramco traces its roots back to 1933 when a deal was struck between Saudi Arabia and the Standard Oil Company of California which uh, later became Chevron um and they were they basically uh, came together to survey and drill for oil and as a result Saudi Aramco was a new company created to do that um then a few years later between 1973 and 1980 Saudi Arabia bought the whole company so Saudis believed that this was the best place for them to reinvest money from the country. So Saudi Arabia um, has the second biggest oil reserves in the world after Venezuela and is also the second largest producer of oil after the US, would you believe? Uh, But it gets uh, its uh, prominence because it has monopoly on all oil in the country and because of how cheap it is to extract. Mm. So that's that's the big picture. Uh, so despite Saudi Arabia spending about seven or so years buying the whole outfit, Saudi Arabia is now keen to sell its shares, or its whole stake in the oil firm, because it's trying to re- reduce its reliance on oil. And the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, wishes to diversify his country's economy in the next decade under a program that he's called the Vision 2030. So that's yep. how the business, if you like, was formed. And the history up to today and why, in fact, the country is divesting it by floating it in part under the stock exchange. Uh, so let's talk about valuation, because as you said, it's, it's uh, headlined as the world's biggest, most profitable business. Yeah. So let's have a closer look at that. Um, what's quite funny is that when I went to download the IPO prospectus, I had to select uh, where I'm from, from a short list of countries. And when I uh, chose uh, uh USA. It's, it bumped me out and said, you're not allowed to see this. So I just clicked back <laughs> and selected other because Ireland wasn't there. And sure enough, I got the IPO prospectus. Hack so I system. changed my mind. I hacked the <laughs> system, uh, master hacker that I am. Uh, and it is a clangor. This is an IPO to behold. Or I should say this is um, a prospectus to behold. It's uh, 658 pages long. What? It's insane. <laughs> it's actually insane. It's not a million miles from our soft bank conversation. Uh, and you'd need a read to... Week to read it and a deciphering yeah. expert by your side because it is a complex tome yeah. and they have covered many things. And despite the fact that I couldn't download it under the pretense of being an American in, in the USA, the very, very, very final page has uh, a state stamp from uh, the state of Texas. And all the engineering reports are signed and sealed by the head of these things in yeah. Texas in the state of Texas so um, so that's a prospectus for you and um, it was a heavy read but it did not say how much of the SETI firm would be sold okay. and there's rumours floating out there between 5 and 10% is what's going to go up onto the Riyadh exchange but that finger has not been crystallised um, no more than the date for the listing so uh, there was a lot, it wasn't a lot we could deduce about what's happening when. But uh, what was quite interesting was the risks and the risks associated with investing in the business are quite untypical. And some of the risks included the government's control over oil output. And a very significant risk was listed as a terrorist attack. So in dealing with a 550-odd page prospectus and in an an old world industry in a country that very personally I'm not over-familiar with, And risks such as terrorist attack, it's very difficult to um, define in your mind where this sits. Uh, But according to Bloomberg, uh, Saudi Aramco is worth $1.2 trillion, uh, although uh, Riyadh would prefer a valuation of... Two trillion, as yeah, you said. Wouldn't. You know who <laughs> wouldn't? You know, in the intro, um, which is one of the reasons why the share sales has been delayed several times up until this point. Uh, so the most common number out there for the value of the business is. Is one point five trillion to one point seven trillion dollars, uh, and again, if you measure sentiment, it's that could be a little on the high side. Yeah. Um, and I guess for trivial benchmarking's sake, Amazon, as of this moment in time, is worth eight hundred eighty-one billion. Uh, so these guys are kind of thinking double that. So to just kind of, and it's completely irrelevant. Just comparing an apple to a pumpkin, saying like comparing Amazon beside. Uh, uh, Saudi armco because yeah. really there 's no relevance between two businesses, so why why is it the possibly going to be the most valuable company in the world? and the answer is it is phenomenally profitable. I mean the business is on a different level of profit yeah um, so for the first half of this year, Saudi Armco posted bottom line earnings or net profit as we say in the decided world of forty seven billion dollars net profit which almost all of which was paid out in dividends to the Saudi state. So in the same period, Apple, which we all know very, very well, the world's largest company at the moment by value, posted a net profit, bottom line profit, of 21.6 billion. So just those two numbers beside each other again. Saudi Aramco posted 47 billion and Apple posted nearly 22 billion. So the profit that this, business generated in half one of this year was over double that of apple massive yeah and the only other i suppose relative benchmark you might grab onto is that exxon mobile the current largest listed oil company made 5.5 billion dollars in the first half of this year so this is a very serious money making machine and you can see why they are kind of talking about a valuation that exceeds apple at the moment so when it floats um I guess the business is going to remain a dividend paying stock Um, and and if the question is am I excited about the flotation am I looking forward to buying shares in the business Uh, the answer is no not especially because I can't foresee the largest company in the world that's operating in a very old world industry yeah growing meaningfully from this
2: point on yes yeah, absolutely and then just in terms of the logistics if this is listing on the Riyadh stock exchange mm. for the common u.s retail investor how might those shares be made available uh,
1: difficult if they only float on the Riyadh exchange yeah. uh, some of the more some of the bigger online full service brokerages mm. might offer uh shares so like for example uh not a very fair comparison but there's a specific company on the New Zealand stock exchange that I'm very keen to buy shares in and I yeah. logged on to TD Ameritrade and sure enough I could get at them okay. I haven't checked if free ad uh, exchange is let's say wired up to yeah, yeah. Uh, TD Ameritrade but I think it'll be quite difficult. Yeah. Um, that said download the prospectus and, and invest at the sort. <laughs>
2: if you have a spare week on your hands. <laughs> but there's
1: a really interesting uh, point about how you, you get a feeling for how truly far this business is from Silicon Valley when you hear them say that local people even quote Saudi female divorcees will be eligible to buy shares. Yeah. Uh, you just realise we're talking about a business sorry a, a business in a country with a culture that's quite far from the culture that we for in this room and, and our friends in the US are, were
0: raised amongst.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I know there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday I think about how they uh, it's being advertised heavily and marketed heavily to the Saudi population. This is like their chance to actually own um, part of yeah. what you know, yeah. what they landed on. Yeah. Uh, when they made Saudi Arabia like the country that it is and where it is. Um kind of upending years of the status quo which was that the royal family owned the oil and promised in order that everyone maintain stability and let them run the place that they would pay out dividends to the people and keep you know socialized uh, medicine and education and jobs and all that kind of stuff you mentioned venezuela beforehand obviously you know venezuela didn't do this they they thought that they were going to have good times forever on the oil that they had and when oil prices sank a couple of years ago yeah. see where that country is now so this it's it's funny Saudi Arabia seems to be in a very tough position because on the one hand they are trying to modernize they're trying to like yeah. they are very into green energy they're they building are. an entire city that's going to yeah. be uh, yeah. green energy what's it called Xeom or Zom. I can't even pronounce it yeah. but Xeom it looks um, like the Babylon yeah futuristic ambitious project that's going to be all uh, done on solar energy but I mean like think about the the problems that they have you know you mentioned terrorist risks. There, there's so many yeah. other risks as well like you know their their former biggest customer the US is now, a, is now an exporter of energy you know with, since they've got yeah. the shale and yeah. uh, China and the EU leaning heavily towards green energy now yeah um, you know they, they they're not this, this is a shrinking total addressable market it is.
1: Yeah. And there's a very, the world over is, is peppered with examples of governments with semi-state or fully state-owned assets that at a peak valuation, they decide will divest this it, uh, because it's the strategic imperative of the country. Why hold on to an asset that isn't, its future isn't as bright as its past? And I just, I I feel very doubtful when I see companies spinning off from state ownership for yeah. a whole bunch of reasons one of them being
0: experienced.
1: Yes, one of which uh, most people in Ireland experienced, exactly, uh, which was the state telecom operator.
2: We won't get into that no, today. No. Um, so that was Saudi Aramco. Let's move on to the company we never talk about. Rory, you're going to take this week and you're going to dive into probably one of the most recognisable and profitable casino operators in the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one of those companies we used to talk about an awful lot, I feel, and then um, probably for the wrong reasons, actually. About, <laughs> yeah. It was about two years ago that the founder, CEO, this is Wynn Resorts, by the way, in case anyone can guess by the casino (laughs) reference. Uh, Steve Wynn was, it came out that he had uh, been sexually exploiting staff members and had to resign. And um, since then, a new CEO has taken, come on board, Matt Maddox. And it's, it's funny, if you look at the chart of Wynn, resorts it kinda has this kind of non-stop roller coaster trajectory where it, it goes up and then goes down really fast and then goes up and goes down very fast. That obviously you never use that as a kind of uh as a kind of investment thesis <laughs> because yeah. now at the moment it's kind of flattened out again. we we'll, we start to see it going up. Now like Wynn at the moment, so you know wins operations are split essentially um in two, now in three. They've got a Las Vegas operation uh which is kind of the steady eddy and it's been going on uh, for you know, twenty years, uh, and then they've got resorts in Macau, which is the peninsula, um, Chinese on peninsula, uh, which is the largest gambling hub in the world by far. Yeah, um,
2: so people often think think of Las Vegas when they think of gambling, but Macau is many times over yeah
0: so i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna paraphrase here but at one point in the interview steve Wynne said macau is the greatest business opportunity that's ever been presented to anyone in the history of the world so, <laughs> steady on steve yeah I mean, like, oh, this was a guy who this was a guy who knew his business and yeah. you know macau is a very very profitable enterprise yeah. um for the companies that have been allowed to participate and when i say allowed to participate it what win has the Others don't. Is that it is one of six operators that is allowed to have a casino in Macau. Um, Macau currently is about eighty percent of the company's operating profits. Uh, So twenty, the other twenty percent being from um, Las Vegas. Uh, They have two resorts there, um, one of which is currently uh, covered in construction um, gear as they rejuvenated, which has caused a little drop in their earnings down there but that's a real short-term issue that that should be finished by next year. Yeah. And the reason I mean, there's a lot of casino operators uh, that are floated and um, both in on the American exchanges and on worldwide exchanges There's the pretty steady investment for people. The reason we chose Wynn is because Wynn is synonymous with high-end luxury and um, based largely around what's Former CEO Steve Wynn's vision of what a a luxury resort should be, which was always grand, he designed the um, the Mirage, the Las Vegas Mirage, and the Bellagio, the famous fountain outside the Bellagio. He's responsible for some of the most iconic buildings in the world of gambling and the world of Las Vegas and stuff like that. Um, The reason we like, or the reason I think that Wynn is going to be a big winner for us going forward. Is that Macau is only becoming a bigger story. Yeah. Um, there's been a huge amount of infrastructure investment put into Macau. Mm-hmm. Uh there's a, a bridge that now connects Hong Kong to Macau. Um obviously Hong Kong is a is another topic of conversation. Um there is a new ferry port open, a new light transit uh system has been is been building, which should be open next year. They're doing a massive land reclamation project that's going to I think increase the land on the island by about 20% or on the peninsula by 20% so this place is growing China's investing massively into this area and it's it's an area that only six companies get to take advantage of yeah and win is one of them and Win's one of the, the best operators in that area uh, they predict solid Macau visitation and growth over the years it's become even more than a casino hub it's going to become a real entertainment hub it's going to become a place for families to go to for non-gaming entertainment it's really going to be you know the Las Vegas of China and it's going to be huge and is is very well positioned to be a big part of it
1: I was investing in one of its competitors I'd say 10 or 15 years ago called Melco Melco Crown Resorts um, of the very same investing thesis Mm. that we're discussing here which is the peninsula of Macau is the rising mega force in in Asian gambling and it's true and I, I think for those very long term investing minds I really I think it's phenomenal I'd love to go and see the place yeah, <laughs> yeah. The company, uh, company research company trip. why not <laughs> yeah.
0: there's also the fact that like there's plenty of more markets opening up over the next 10 years South Korea is going to be a huge gaming market yeah. Japan is going to be a huge gaming market and this is a company that's proven time and time again that it delivers hmm. on building high-end luxury resorts that attract people and mm. um, it's the reason why they were the only company that got a license for the boston uh, casino which yeah. they only opened a couple of months ago uh, which seems to be doing fine um it's the reason why they got the original gaming license in macau they have a reputation that is that precedes them anytime they go in for to try and get one of these gaming licenses and they're just a company i think is going to continue to to build on this
2: Cool. So that was Win Resorts. Um, Don't forget that we've recently launched a desktop version of the My Wall Street app. This means that you can now enjoy our market-beating, stock picks and stock of the month selection on any device. Uh, Check it out now by going to www.mywallstreet.com and logging in with the same credentials you you use in the My Wall Street app. If you're a new user, you can also sign up here to get a three-day trial of our service completely free. Um, November stock of the month selection is already up close to 10% after reporting on a brilliant quarter recently. And we're adding a new stock to the market meeting shortlist on Monday. Um, this is a
0: company, Rory, that was previously kind of targeted by Amazon. Yeah, heavily targeted by Amazon. And we took I said, we mentioned earlier anti fragile. This is yeah. maybe one of those companies that's mm-hmm. anti fragile.
2: Absolutely. So that's coming to the app on Monday. Make sure to check it out then. Um, jargon Busters so we've two questions for Jargon Busters this week and the first one is actually relates back to our last episode um, so since our last episode Fitbit has been acquired by Google Rory You're you are
0: going to bring that up <laughs> Rory wasn't too confident it would happen but it didn't, wasn't that I wasn't confident I just said it was a rumour it, <laughs> well, it hadn't been announced yet well so. it's on record Rory so <laughs> but, um, the question I suppose now for Fitbit investors is
2: what happens to their shares in Fitbit now that Google has acquired the company well, they haven't actually
0: acquired them yet. Okay. So this is me. see it again. I have to correct you each time. <laughs> no. Uh they've they've made the offer to acquire them. It looks like it's a done deal. Uh it'll be finalized at some point probably next year. They yep. they weren't too specific about what quarter or whether it be first half or second half. But yeah, they they bought them for two point one billion dollars. It's seventy seven dollars thirty-five per share, I think. Uh that represented an eighteen percent uh premium on the day before his price and a seventy percent premium on the price just one week ago Before the rumours started circulating okay. So Fitbit Cheryl is getting a good premium On their shares Yeah uh, Just in terms of a the percentage increase um, So what will happen is Well you've kind of got two options You can sell your shares At the current price Which is probably about 4 or 5% discount From the actual acquisition price Yeah Which uh, that discount is there Just in case the deal doesn't go through Okay um, so you can sell them now, take the money, and reinvest in something else, or you can just wait till it gets uh, finalised. In which case, you get the full seven thirty-five whack and uh you won't you will no longer be a fitbit shareholder yeah it's this is an all cash deal there's no stock exchange so you'll just get cash into your account and you can invest it in something else if you if you want to invest it in google you can yeah keep in mind that fitbit it will be literally like a 0.1 percent of the business <laughs> <laughs> uh so you, you your exposure to fitbit won't be as as great but um it's it, Just keep in mind that you might have to pay taxes on it as well.
2: Yeah, of the tax event. Uh, cool. So the second question we have then is about price to earnings ratio. So what is a price to earnings ratio, Emmett? And how should you use it in assessing a stock?
1: Sure. Well, a P ratio is the current share price. That's the P divided by the earnings per share or the net profit per share. And it's generally a number ranging from uh, one to multiple of thousands. Yeah. Uh, or na non applicable and the the p is a number uh, that has been the focal point of people in our profession for a very very long time but i think as the years have gone by and businesses have evolved it's less relevant certainly i've never made a stock investment that was informed by the p beyond simply seeing is there a p yeah. Is it NA or a number? Because if it is a number, the business is profitable. Yeah. Or if there is no number, it is not profitable. But there's very little, I believe, you can deduce from a P, especially in a business where profits um, are growing quickly because that P number is changing on a daily basis, on yeah. an hourly basis. Now, for older world businesses, I think some traditional stock analysts will stack the P of similar businesses beside each other. And use it to take a view on which one might be relatively cheaper. Yeah, It's something I've never done. And we as a team, we don't, we have never discussed the P of a business. So it is definitely has a role. It has had a role. But other ratios, I think, in the investing world today are far more relevant, whether it's a multiple of sales or uh, whether it's the price earnings growth ratio. But the P ratio itself is something that, I don't want to declare as useless, but has never been a great use to me. What about you, Rory?
0: Um, again, I won't say it's useless, but yeah. it's, it's a tool. It's yeah. part of a toolkit that you can use to get a very first glance look yeah. at something okay. like it's never something that you would use as an investment thesis, thesis. That it's, that it's like it's a
1: cigarette lighter in your car you'd be shocked if anyone ever uses yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> but it's good to have it there <laughs> well I find like new
0: new investors do lean on it quite heavily because it's yeah. something that it's, if you know it's if, if you read Investing 101 it's probably yeah. the first thing that's going to come up and people are going to yeah, focus God. in on that because it's very yeah. solid and it, yeah. you can look at it across a number of companies that's right. but yeah. it tells you so little very very little yeah yeah
2: okay cool so that was PE ratio Um, so let's move on to the elevator pitch then so for this week I asked you to pick one mega trend that you're most excited about over the next 5 or 10 years so we've on this podcast I think we've talked about a lot of different mega trends from you know the alternative meat uh, revolution to 5G we've mentioned before but I want you to pick one that you think will be kind of very influential um, globally over the next 5 or 10 years Um, Emmett, I'll come to you first I'll give you 60 seconds
1: 60. Oh, great. So for me, the most pressing megatrend as opposed to my favorite megatrend is the climate crisis. Okay. Um, polar ice is melting with the net result of trillions of liters of fresh water being added to the oceans, which is changing the salinity of the seas. Uh, those very seas have become plastic soup with the Great Pacific Garbage Patch being estimated at 15 million square kilometers in size, which is about the size of Russia. And even last night, just last night, St. Mark's Square in Venice City was submerged by the highest tide seen in the city in 50 years. And now I think at the moment they're saying the highest tide. So we are looking at a global disaster and um, I'm an absolute believer that it is the greatest challenge that humankind in our generation will have to face. So the climate crisis is the mega trend, I believe, that will most touch every living creature's life over the next 10 years. And as a result, it is the one that, while I wouldn't say most excited about, is the one that I believe every problem Presents opportunities and therefore it is the mega trend I am
2: most engaged
1: in. 101. One minute and one second.
2: <laughs> Bye on. So that was the climate crisis. Uh, Rory.
0: Um, yeah, I'm going to go for a kind of broad one, I suppose. Uh, well, one thing, one mega trend that I really don't think is going to take off is VR. Yeah. I think mm. it's totally overblown and it's kind of silly at this point. But one thing I do love is voice. Um, so whether you're talking about kind of an echo in your home. Or AirPods using Hey Siri. I really think voice is going to be a very important part. I've just sorry, I've just set Siri off on your phone there. <laughs> <laughs> and on my computer. Uh, stop listening. <laughs> um, sorry, I won't say her name again. So I think that voice is gonna play a very big part in the future. I think, you know, Google a while ago talked about ambient computing, having kind of having a computer kind of all around you all the time in some way, shape or form. And that might sound quite dystopian, but it has the ability to change really the way we live. You know, the Google, uh, I think it was a year ago, demonstrated when they were talking to someone in different languages how they could instantly translate uh, between people who were listening in through their Google pods, or whatever it was. So I think that's quite an interesting kind of future mega trend, And that's, I'm not sure exactly how to play it yet, but
2: yeah, I like it. Well, just for the fact you set off Siri there when you were talking about it, I think I have to go with voice. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of got it right yeah. in action there. Uh, so that's about it for this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app and My Wall Street desktop at the moment. If there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode of Stock Club, please make sure to get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to StockTub. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. From all of us here today, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing.
0: My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along,